Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you remember you wrote something, I'm guessing it was a year or two ago, but you basically wrote about how finance was sort of ground zero for deglobalization and a trade war. Do you remember that? I don't remember the specific thing per se that you're talking about, but I feel like this has been a reoccurring theme for us and a couple of things I've written and you've written for a while now, thinking about like just this idea that if the world is going to deglobalize, and arguably it is, and arguably President Trump, that's part of his mission, that finance might be really where you see it emerge first. Right. Because I think what tends to happen when people talk about trade tensions or a trade war is people start thinking about tangible goods, you know, like semiconductors and and chips and I don't know, all sorts of commodities. But people rarely actually stop and think that, well, all that global trade is something that is being financed by someone. And the financiers in this case are financial institutions or large banks. And so it would make a lot of sense if they also get hit by the trade tensions. Absolutely. And if you look at the history of finance, and I remember this was something we talked about years ago on the podcast. Uh, I think we were talking to Emmanuel Derman. If you look at the history of finance, so much of it corresponds to globalization and even the sort of explosion of derivatives and other uh, measures designed to hedge risk. A lot of it is designed to sort of mitigate the risk of trading across two different countries with different currencies and so forth. So you really you can't talk about globalization without talking about all these instruments that have been built up by Wall Street banks. Very true. And you mentioned currencies just then. And the interesting thing is that even though we're talking about global trade and cross-border financial transactions, of course, the vast majority of these are still denominated in the U.S. dollar. So you have this weird sort of space where uh, things are happening between countries, between all these different entities, companies and banks. uh, But many of the transactions are dollar denominated. And of course, what we've seen recently has been a bout of US dollar strength. And the speculation has been that that has added to the pain of the trade war, at least up until recently. Yeah, there's a lot of different sub stories going on right now with the trade war with actions taken by the Trump administration. One of them that hasn't got a ton of attention is whether any of this is going to eventually contribute to the undollarization of the global economy, because people have been predicting that for a long time that maybe somehow global different trading partners might find an opportunity to come off the dollar, but nothing really has even come close to emerging that would actually replace the dollar. The euro has flaws. The Chinese UN, for obvious reasons, is not in a position to really replace it. But with the various actions that the Trump administration has taken, obviously people wondering if there will be a renewed effort on part of various actors to get out of the dollar system, so to speak. Right. And even if there isn't a push to replace the dollar in some way, you can imagine that there will be renewed focus on the potential for a currency war, right? Devaluations right. to sort of increase your competitiveness when it comes to trade. So that seems to be the minimum. Anyway, 
the reason this intro is slightly disjointed is because we have a guest on today who not only can talk about everything from trade to cross-border flows to currency regimes, but pretty much anything else. Cryptocurrency, financial stability, big tech, uh, credit markets overheating, you name it, he can talk about it. Yeah, exactly. So like we have this really unwieldy intro touching on all these things because our guest <laughs> is, is so unusual and unique in his ability to pull together and cover all these uh, all these different strands of what's going on in world financial markets and the economy. Exactly. We're going to see if we can narrow it down a bit. But uh, without further ado, our guest for today is Hyun Song Shin. He is economic advisor and head of research for the Bank for International Settlements. And uh, if you haven't been following his research already, I highly encourage you to do so. Hyun, it's so nice to have you on the show. Hello, Tracy. Hello, Joe. It's good to be here. Hello. So apologies again uh, for that unwieldy intro, but I, I think it does speak to the breadth of your research, which is really wide and, and varied. Could you maybe... Just to begin with, give us a sort of rundown of what your mandate actually is at the BIS. Yeah, um, I mean, the BIS, as you know, is the oldest international financial institution. We were set up in 1930. It's uh, a body to uh, foster the, uh, the cooperation among central banks. Uh, we have around 60 member central banks. And our task is to, um, is to focus those discussions, help to facilitate uh, cooperation among the central banks, both for monetary policy and for financial stability. We also host uh, many of the uh, international regulatory committees that, uh, that oversee some of the discussions, like the Basel Committee and the Financial Stability Board. And tell us about your role there, because you, the BIS puts out quite a bit of research. You put out quite a bit of uh, research. What is the sort of overarching goal of what you're pursuing with the uh, things you've been working on? You know, we're here to serve central banks in how they conduct monetary policy and also uh, how they can serve as the guardians of financial stability. And so, you know, this is a, um, this is a very broad remit, as you can imagine. So right. we have to be, uh, you know, pretty broad in our approach. You know, it's very kind of you to, to be so complimentary. But I think this is, uh, you know, we regard this as being part of our job. And I think you, you uh, uh, gave a very good introduction to where we find ourselves in the, in the global economy right now. I mean, we had a very strong 2017 in global growth, but uh, since uh, the right. middle of last year, we, you know, we had this uh, slowdown, which at first seemed like just a reversion to the mean, but uh, you know, it, it turned into something a little bit more, something a little bit deeper, uh, where we saw the manufacturing and trade, you know, contract, uh, even as employment, uh, you know, remained strong um, and consumption was uh, was pretty strong. Uh, underpinned by the strong services sector. And um, uh, what we try and do is to try and uh, join the dots. Uh, and the dots actually could be in somewhat unfamiliar places in terms of the standard way that we classify the way that we subdivide the different areas of economics. And, right. and, and, and I think trade, manufacturing, global growth, all turns out to be quite closely related to financial forces. And I think here um, is where the where the currency dimension comes in because it's it does seem from the accumulated evidence that the 
that the broad dollar index has uh, something of the character of a of a barometer of global risk appetite. Hmm. Right. So in some of your research before, you've actually published this really great chart that basically shows when the dollar strengthens, uh, trade kind of drops and, and vice versa. Basically, there's an inverse relationship between the greenback and, and global trade. Can you walk us through exactly what's happening there and why does the dollar matter so much when it comes to this particular issue? For those of your listeners who are not perhaps familiar with this chart, I would just point them to the speech I gave in Berlin uh, at the uh, German Federal Ministry of Finance. This was uh, um, in the middle of May. And uh, you know, if we chart the ratio of uh, global exports to global GDP, that displays a very interesting pattern. And that ratio is a very interesting ratio because, you know, trade is measured on a gross basis um, in that, uh, you know, whenever shipments uh, you know, cross the border, you can just uh, tally it all up. And it's measured in gross terms in that you don't uh, take into account the fact that uh, some of the inputs into the exports uh, were actually themselves imported. Whereas GDP is a value-added measure. It's, uh, you know, it measures what is the total value of the goods produced as measured by the final output, right? So if you take that ratio, which is uh, gross exports to GDP, and um, you know, we can uh, sum that up to the global level, what it gives you is the degree of double counting that happens when we measure gross exports. And that uh, you know, if the same uh, component is used for, uh, you know, as an input into another intermediate good, and then that intermediate good is exported uh, into another country, which then gets processed into a, a further intermediate good, which is then exported. The more times a particular component crosses the border, the larger will be the disparity between uh, you know, gross exports and GDP. So you know, that ratio does fluctuate a lot. And it's a useful proxy for the activity of global value chains. So uh, manufacturing has been the, the driver of global trade growth in the last few decades. And uh, within the manufacturing trade, it's been the growth of the global value chains. It's a, it's a supply chains that have been very, very important. And no country has been more important in this development uh, than China. In fact, China has emerged. If you look at one of the charts in the, in, the, in the Berlin speech that I mentioned, there's a very striking chart that shows China going from somewhat of a a small node in the year 2000 before they entered the WTO to really the, uh, the connecting linchpin in, in, in the global trading system. Now, what do you need to, to sustain very elaborate global value chains like that? Well, for this to uh, actually work, what you need is uh, all the intermediate goods to be financed while they're in uh, the intermediate goods stage. So if you look at, the, just think about a corporate balance sheet when you have lots of intermediate goods that are uh, whizzing back and forth. I mean, they will be appearing either as uh, inventories or they'll be appearing as uh, accounts receivable, you know, if, uh, if that good has crossed the boundary of the firm. And these are assets of the firm which need to be financed somehow. And typically they have been financed either through the firm's internal resources. But what we know very well from other studies is that the global banking system has been a very important uh, source of funding for the, the short-term assets that, that underpin the global value chain. And the other thing that we know from the other studies, uh, some of it uh, you know, you've already mentioned, is 
that uh, financial conditions in dollars and uh, and the dollar exchange rate itself is very closely correlated, and that when the dollar is strong, um, this is when dollar credit tends to be somewhat tight, and uh, uh, the funding conditions go up. The uh, in particular, the cross border element seems to be uh, very sensitive. So, if you put two and two together, and we combine it with the prevalence of dollar invoicing. What we have is the combination of the following facts: that uh, uh, you need short-term assets to be financed in order to support global value chains. You need uh, the dollar financing to be rather free in order for the dollar financing to support those short-term assets, and that means that you tend to see an expansion of trade when the dollar financing conditions are more accommodative, and that's when the dollar is weak. So this ratio. Of uh, the global exports to global GDP tends to move in the opposite direction uh, to the strength of the dollar. What uh, one could reasonably conjecture about uh, the events of 2018 into the early part of 2019 is that this was indeed the period when uh, you know we saw uh, the dollar strengthen. And 2017 was a was a year when the dollar uh, was actually quite weak. This was a period, in spite of the Fed's increase in its policy rate,、uh, we saw very accommodated financial conditions. Now, it's、uh, I think important just to point out here that、uh, the dollar is an endogenous variable; it's a financial market price. So, there isn't any particular causal story as to why、uh, the dollar、right. is strong and why you might actually get these things going from the dollar to these other real variables. But If you want a barometer, if you want a, a concurrent indicator of what's going on, you cannot do much better than to look at the the value of the、uh, of the broad dollar index. I mean that that was fantastic, and that was just sort of a great explanation of what's going on. I actually pulled up your chart that you're referring to、uh, while you were explaining it, and what's really striking is again we talk about、uh, deglobalization and the age of Trump. But as you pointed out in your speech, and as the chart shows, this ratio of、uh, world goods exports to GDP has really been falling、uh, ever since 2011. And in fact, if you even bigger picture, what you see from your chart is that from 2001 till about the start of the、uh, Great Financial Crisis, trade as a percentage of GDP had been going up, and that was also a period of significant dollar weakness and a lot of angst about. Oh, is there something? The twin deficits, and is the euro going to replace the dollar, and all that stuff? And then, after the Great Financial Crisis, you see a, a brief jump in a、uh, world trade that ratio, but then it's declining. So, as you point out, the dollar itself is not the causal variable per se. It's a、uh, concurrent. It's endogenous. What is the story then that explains、uh, some of this deglobalization trend since the?、Uh, Early aftermath of the Great Financial Crisis, or what might be some of the、uh, explanatory factors? Yes, Joe. I think that's a, that's a very good observation. And、uh, you know, for the for your listeners,、uh, the chart is only plotted from the year two thousand. If you extend that back further, of course, you know there was a golden age of、uh, globalization when、uh, trade to GDP rose tremendously、uh, over a very very long time. So I think that's probably you know the over the longer horizon. If we go back to the seventies,、uh, eighties, and nineties, and the golden age of globalization was the was the late eighties and the nineteen nineties, 
That's probably much more to do with uh, liberalization right. to you know these longer range forces. But the but the period from two thousand three uh, up to the crisis. That's probably uh, better understood, uh, as you say, in terms of uh, what was happening to the dollar, but in particular, uh, what was happening to the banking sector and the ease with which um, you know you could get credit from the banks. And you know we we now know the full right. story with the benefit of hindsight. That was a very very special period. And uh, what we've seen since the crisis is the banking sector hasn't really been. Hasn't really recovered its mojo, if you like. They have been better capitalized.、Uh, we are now well over the crisis. But what's happened is the environment, the you know financial environment, in terms of the slope of the yield curve, in terms of the net interest margins of the banks, that has、uh, been very far from the story、uh, be- uh, before the crisis, which was really、uh, very much more conducive to the increase in leverage. The chart itself is、uh, is a very striking one because, as you say. Uh, this ratio of、uh, global exports to global GDP、uh, never really went back to the pre-crisis peak, and it's been on this downward trend since 2011, with only a brief respite in 2017, which uh, uh, you know、uh, turned out to be a little bit of a blip、um, in in retrospect, because this was a particular period when、uh, financial conditions were were looser. Tracy, you know one other thing that occurs to me looking at this chart of global trade relative to GDP,、mm-hmm. it looks a lot like a chart that you would get if you、uh, plotted emerging market stock prices relative to、uh, developed market equities, because that's one of those things where EMs did great pre-crisis and then they massively outperformed in the immediate aftermath of the crisis,、mm-hmm. but then they've just been totally、uh, mediocre ever since then. So. Kind of a clue, perhaps, to what drives、uh, EM equities, right? And that sort of gets back to that cross-border dynamic. But、um, Hyun, I I wanted to concentrate on on one thing, which is, I guess it's sort of expected that banks play a, an outsized role in transmitting、um, financial conditions or monetary policy to the rest of the world or the real world, if you will. And I'm just wondering. Given that monetary policy has been so easy post 2008, and yet we've seen、uh, cross-border lending sort of contract or global trade contract、um, by your measurement, does that mean that the bank's transmission mechanism is is effectively broken? Is banking not doing what it's supposed to be doing? As to whether financial conditions have been have been loose or, or tight, I think it's it's very much、uh, it it has been. Very、uh, accommodative in the sense that long-term interest rates have been low, and、uh, this has been very conducive to the issuance of、uh, fixed-income instruments,、uh, especially corporate bonds. So, if we look at the the composition of、uh, of the increase in debt, it's、uh, far less the liabilities of intermediaries. It's, it's far less bank lending that's been at the centre of the story. It's much more. The issuance of long-term instruments, long-term、uh, capital market、uh, instruments like corporate bonds.、Uh, if you look at、uh, one of the charts that's、uh, in the in the speech, what we see is that even as bank lending, denominated in dollars, has、uh, really been quite weak since the crisis, 
dollar-denominated issuance of corporate bonds has been has been very strong. Now, for the purpose of uh, supporting trade, uh, the problem is that you know trade uh, relies very much on the short-term funding coming primarily from the banks, uh, you know, as well as the the firm's own own equity. So. Uh, you know, for a while, when uh, balance sheets were quite strong in the corporate sector, uh, the weak bank lending probably wasn't such a big break on uh, on trade and global value chain activity. But what we've seen is that over time, uh, especially in the emerging markets, especially uh, firms in China, uh, there has been a lot of uh, uh, long-term debt issuance by the non-financial corporates. And so when you are starting with already quite a leveraged balance sheet and you see conditions tightening. That is a very different story from when you start with a pretty strong balance sheet and you have a lot more internal resources that you can deploy. And the banking sector really isn't anywhere there to give you that support. So it's it's really the combination of the banking sector still repairing, still uh, somewhat uh, mm. subdued because of the uh, of the very special... Uh, yield curve conditions since the crisis, together with uh, the accumulated debts that have happened since the crisis. And so what we've seen is that, uh, you know, these things are coming to a head more recently. I think that's the way that I would see it. So if you go back to the pre-crisis era, obviously we saw rapid expansion in global trade, which, as you point out, was a period of easy lending and uh, banks being quite willing to uh, finance things. But of course, we all know how that ended with a gigantic financial crisis, uh, economic collapse. Is there a way to get back to the pre-crisis era from a trade perspective in a more sustainable manner so we can actually see that line turn up again for a while, but it not inevitably lead towards disaster? What all this uh, raises is the intriguing possibility that, you know, although we, we like to make this very sharp distinction between uh, the real economy and the financial markets and then, uh, you know, think about uh, excesses only happening in the financial markets. Well, you know, there, there is a sense where um, some very, very extended global value chain structures may only be sustainable with really, really extraordinarily uh, loose financial conditions, and so, so if you like, uh, you know, there there could be uh, you know bubble-like features of uh, real activity as well if it's really very heavily extended. Huh. And so, we should think about you know, um, you know one of the things that uh, we emphasize here at the BIS is uh, uh, long-term sustainability. So, what is sustainable in the long term? What kind of uh, economic activities are resilient to to shocks and uh, and what can policymakers do to uh, bring these things about? So, I mean, those are the things that we tend to focus on. We we try to have a longer term perspective on these things, and 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 within that broad framework, uh, you know, you could argue that just pushing on the accelerator, just trying to extend the global value chains further, you know, that may be okay to boost the real quantities, you know, in the process of lengthening. But then you are setting yourself up for. Uh, a more, you know, a sharper uh, uh, pullback when when conditions tighten. Well, I, I wanted to sort of press on this point because uh, you mentioned that, you know, post-2008, a lot of this global financing is coming in the form of uh, bonds being issued by corporates rather than your typical bank loans. But the thing that those two things often have in common is their currency, so all dollar-denominated 
and, and this gets back to Joe's emerging market point as well. I'm just wondering how vulnerable do you think the world economy is to a dollar liquidity squeeze at this point? Uh, On that question, I think we have to distinguish between the kinds of acute episodes that we saw uh, in the run-up to the 2008 crisis, which have to do with very rapid deleveraging, very rapid contraction of wholesale funding by banks and bank-like intermediaries. I mean, that was a very, very sharp uh, pullback, and uh, that was a very acute episode. I don't think we have the same kind of vulnerabilities in the banking sector right now. I mean, if anything, the banks have been quite subdued, as we have just talked about. But in fact, the, you know, the vulnerabilities, you know, they're more, um, uh, you know, longer term, if you like. I mean, they have to do with uh, debts of uh, non-intermediary, non-banks. You know, they're more chronic, if you like. I mean, they rather than acute. In, in some countries, uh, especially those countries that didn't experience the worst of the global financial crisis, Household debt has continued to rise. Uh, House prices are now very high. Corporate uh, debt is high pretty much across the board, uh, both advanced and emerging economies. And so, you know, those uh, forces can act as a break on potential stimulants towards uh, real uh, real economic activity. I mean, there's a a limit to how much debt uh, households would take on. Uh, You know, there may be, uh, you know, limited room for further monetary policy tools to stimulate uh, growth, for example. So one of the things that we, we have been saying here this year is that uh, you know, we need to have uh, a more balanced mix of policy. Uh, so rather than simply relying on just one engine, uh, monetary policy, we have to think of this as a, as a jumbo jet with, uh, with four engines, right? So it's, it's monetary policy, but not only that, we have fiscal policy, uh, macroprudential frameworks, and not uh, last but not least, uh, you know, structural reforms. I mean, and structural reforms doesn't mean just uh, cutting jobs and uh, reducing workers' protection. I think it's it's more to do with finding ways to uh, you know reinvigorate growth through uh, very key you know investments in key sectors. And this, of course, is linked to the uh, the infrastructure uh, investment angle as well. So you know, things are certainly not as precarious as they were in two thousand seven. But certainly, you know, we haven't really seen, uh, you know, the return to vigorous growth that we would really ideally would like to have seen by now. It's, I think, uh, you know, to do our jobs better, we have to take a step back and try and get the right diagnosis for this. And uh, uh, and I think this is where these longer term studies like, uh, you know, the the trade to GDP, uh, you know, how the financial system is evolving. I think these are... Longer term developments are really important as uh, kind of, you know, as the uh, as the backdrop for our policy discussions. When you talk about macro prudential tools as being one of the engines to re-stimulate growth, what are you referring to specifically? So, you know, macro prudential frameworks have to do with uh, ways of complementing monetary policy so that the financial system is uh, resilient, uh, that it can be that it can function in a way that helps us to, you know, reap the benefits of uh, of cheap financing conditions more broadly, but uh, target the, uh, you know, target those measures to those sectors or to those areas where, you know, you'd expect the vulnerabilities to be, uh, you know, to be higher. So, you know, if um, you're worried about FX debt, um, then you know, regulations. 
that are targeted to those sectors, uh, you know, may be appropriate. If you're, if you're worried about mortgages, you know, that may be one other area. So it's not going to be a magic bullet in the sense that, you know, this is uh, not going to be, you know, watertight and that uh, it's going to be immune to circumvention and so on. But nevertheless, uh, you may be able to deal with, uh, you know, emerging financial vulnerabilities uh, without uh, having to resort to monetary policy, which will have a much broader impact. And so, you know, together with fiscal policy, it's, it's just one of the various many tools that uh, policymakers should be using. Right. So if you spot risks building up in the system, then the the better tool to deal with those might not be a sort of change in the benchmark policy rate, because that affects a bunch of things at the same time, but maybe some sort of macroprudential uh, limitation that would target that specific area. So on that note, um, I got to ask, do you think that policymakers have made enough use of macroprudential tools in the years since the financial crisis? And also, uh, have they done enough with macroprudential tools, specifically when it comes to the U.S. and its credit market? I mean, the answer to your first question is yes. I mean, there has been quite an extensive uh, move towards uh, both putting on the books these uh, policies to be, you know, to be wheeled out whenever necessary. But emerging markets have really, uh, you know, led the way. They have shown uh, advanced economies how uh, these additional tools can be used and. You know, in a way, uh, for the emerging markets, there is nothing new under the sun with uh, with macroprudential instruments. I mean, they are in a part and parcel of the policy mix. Uh, you know, it now has this new shiny label, but it's really uh, old wine in new bottles. Uh, you know, I think for the U.S., the use of the the stress test on the banks. Um, you know, that that's been a very important tool. You know, the U.S. Uh, having gone through the very sharp crisis in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Is one of those countries which, um, you know, if you look at all the aggregate measures, looks, you know, probably in in uh, in reasonably good shape because it's uh, it, the leverage of the banking sector is low, household debt is pretty low, you know, the the you know the corporate sector, uh, like anywhere, you know, has seen uh, you know greater issuance of corporate debt. There is the there is a leverage loan uh, discussion. But on the whole, the U.S. doesn't seem, you know, that badly placed. Nor the, uh, you know, nor the euro area. I think, if anything, the euro area is um, is one of those areas. Well, apart from uh, the very high sovereign debt levels, it uh, in terms of household debt, it is on the low side as well. So I think we are, in terms of the lessons from two thousand eight, um, I think we, you know, we should never be complacent about this. But I don't think we are in, you know, nearly in. in uh, as bad a state as in 2006, 2007. But having said all that, you know, we, we know that, uh, you know, these things never happen in exactly the same way. And so I think this is where, you know, clear thinking is needed. I think this is where, you know, we need to sit around and be, you know, imaginative and just use our imagination as to what, uh, uh, you know, what might happen and then just test those uh, conjectures uh, and say, you know, well, you know, that's a good story, but do the numbers, uh, you know, actually uh, actually back up your story? And so, this is what we do, uh, pretty much as our day jobs here. We um, we take these scenarios and we put them through their paces, and uh, I think this is the way that we try and um, uh, you know come to a a more balanced view. So, looking to the here and now, and you talked about how in 2017 it looked like the global economy was looking fairly robust. 
Then it started slipping in early 2018. It looked like it might just be a sort of reversion to the mean, but then it got a little deeper and it went a little longer than just something uh, temporary and cyclical. Wide perception is now the global economy is not doing that great. And we've recently seen the Federal Reserve take a more dovish stance, pretty much signaling the clear end of the rate hiking cycle and the likely commencement of a rate cutting cycle, or at least some rate cuts. So in your view, sort of what is the story of the last two years and right now? Like what explains why this downturn was perhaps a little more deep than people expected? And is this the start of a meaningful turn where the uh, shift in Fed policy might reinvigorate the global economy? Or are central bankers really just sort of trying to squeeze water from a stone here with further easing from the ECB and the Fed where you know, maybe you give a little bit of a pop to financial markets, but at this point, we're just leaning way too heavily on one of the four engines to do anything meaningful. Yeah, Joe, that's a very good question. I wish I knew the, the full answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, uh, if we just look back over the last couple of years, uh, you know, 2017 was a very interesting year because this was a year when, on all accounts, the Fed was on its steady course in normalizing monetary policy and yet the dollar was weak and financial conditions were loose. And so there was no you know, one-for-one -one relationship with uh, the Fed's monetary stance. I think that's, uh, that's worth thinking about because that's also um, very useful in thinking about why uh, the first half of 2019 um, has been pretty challenging, even though you know, over the end of the year, the Fed uh, went on a more patient, uh, you know, uh, went on a pause. Now, it's, it's true that... Um, the dollar has weakened and, uh, you know, the, the biggest beneficiaries of that weakening have actually been emerging market currencies. So, you know, if that trend were to continue uh, and we think that the previous, uh, you know, relationships are going to reassert themselves, then, you know, that should be uh, a cause for some comfort. Now, having said that, at every turn, uh, it, you know, we are starting with a different stock, right? So, you know, stocks do change over time. And so the same kind of push that would... Uh, that would actually push a small car may not uh, have the same impact, you know, when, when it's fully laden and it's a larger car. And so, you know, I, I don't think we can really uh, say for sure, but as a, you know, as a market observer, as an economic commentator who, uh, who cares about the twists and turns of the, of the global economy, I think, uh, you know, we could do far worse than, than track, uh, you know, how the dollar uh, shifts vis-a-vis -vis the emerging market currencies. So, so let's see how that plays out. Well, Hyun, it's been amazing having you on the program. Thank you so much. I, I think we managed to hit uh, basically a lot of big topics in a short amount of time. So thanks again. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was great. So, Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation. And again, if I haven't said it already, um, Hyun's research work is is really great and definitely worth reading. And I think at this point, he must have a library. I mean, I remember papers of his going back to like 2008. So he has this huge body of work. I got to say, it's pretty difficult to narrow it down to a 30-minute podcast. But hey, we tried. Can I just say there were two things that really jumped out at me 
um, about that conversation. So one is I really enjoy the sort of way he was able to blend these sort of big theoretical insights with very tangible real world consequences. So all these ideas about the relationship between financing conditions and the state of global trade or the state of the economy, and then being able to actually put sort of meat on the bone, so to speak, and show how it plays out in the actual data, I think was really cool. And also, I was just really impressed by the sort of clarity of the conversation, because I always find the BIS work to be kind of intimidating. I don't know if I should admit that, but I click on their papers and I read them and it's in this sort of austere gray and I'm like, oh God, this is going to be above my head and I'm not going to be able to understand it and it's going to use all this stuff that I don't know about. But I just found it to be an incredibly clear and simple to understand conversation. So I really appreciated that. Well, I don't think you're alone in finding the BIS intimidating. And I'm going to admit that my dad, who's my sort of... um, benchmark for mainstream America uh, definitely thinks the Bank for International Settlements is uh, some sort of like shadowy cabal that controls uh, the world economy and and global business. (laughs) So um, there is that conspiracy theory out there. But on a serious note, uh, there was one thing that, that came through to me in that conversation, and it's the notion of the Federal Reserve as the sort of world's central bank. And I don't think like, you know, that narrative or that question pops up every once in a while, but not nearly as much as as it should, especially given the attention on trade at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And especially and of course, at the June press conference, Fed Chairman Powell making very clear how much world events and world conditions were influencing the Fed's thinking right now. So any notion that the Fed can just, oh, just look at the data within U.S.'s borders, clearly not a realistic thing to do in 2019. Right, but also vice versa, because there's this weird chicken and egg situation where, yes, the U.S. can be impacted by external events in the rest of the world, but then by reacting to external events, the Fed ends up influencing them as well. And again, it, it's so weird that uh, people don't talk about it more. And we have this debate, yeah. again, sort of like on the fringes about whether or not the Fed has a, uh, a another mandate in the form of um, worrying about how its monetary policy actually impacts, say, emerging market economies or other parts of the world. Well, and also to that point, I really liked his last point. I think it was one of his last points about even there the sort of undirect relationship between Fed policy and financial conditions as exemplified by 2017, in which it looked like the Fed or the Fed was, in fact, on a very steady series of hikes to move rates higher. All the while, it was a year of a weak dollar and loosening financial conditions. So even the relationship between what the Fed does and what the ultimate outcome on financial conditions is, is itself sort of a very unlinear relationship. Yeah. Basically, it's all very complicated. That's my conclusion. It's all very complicated. That's my conclusion, too. All right. Uh, This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Hyun Song Shin. He's at Hyun Song Shin. 
And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out the home of Bloomberg Podcasts on Twitter at the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.